If you want access to bonus episodes, reading lists for every series of Empire, a chat community, discounts for all the books mentioned in the week's podcast, ad-free listening, and a weekly newsletter, sign up to Empire Club at www.empirepoduk.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. As a plant-based cheese company, Daya has never talked about beef in an ad before because someone somewhere once had a beef with saying beef and plant-based together. So putting a slice of Daya cheese on a beef burger, not okay. Well, our delicious melty cheese has a beef with your beef about beef because any step towards plant-forward eating is a step in the right direction. Daya, 100% plant-based, even if you're not. Now made with Daya Oat Cream Blend. Welcome to Empire with me, Anita Arnon. And me, William Durrumpel. And very, very excitingly, because we love her on this podcast, we're joined by Vesta Sarkosh Curtis, author, curator and honorary director of the British Institute of Persian Studies, to discuss, and we are very excited about this too, the Book of Kings, the Shahnameh. And it's, it's a, I mean, it's not, to call it a book is really doing it a disservice, isn't it, William? Well, Vesta, you you reply to that. You're you're the you're the proud Persian. What does the the Book of Kings? What does the Shahnameh mean to a Persian? Well, first of all, it's hello to everybody. <laughs> um, <laughs> the the Book of Kings means an awful lot to us Iranians. I mean, it is an epic that really revives all the pre-Islamic traditions, all the ancient Iranian traditions, but it also revives the language. To me personally, it's like my Bible. I love it. I love it. I read it. I consult it. It's a source of information. The language is beautiful. It's not difficult. It's not difficult. And it consists of 55,000 double verses. It's in poetry and the most beautiful language that you can imagine. And often presented in the most gorgeous, sumptuous, illuminated manuscripts. Absolutely. I mean, the illuminated manuscripts begin in the 14th century and they become more and more elaborate. And each story has many illuminations and images. And you can sort of imagine how the people or the heroes looked like, how the animals were, how the demons were. It really is the most magnificent and beautiful book that I can imagine. Uh, I I was commissioned last year by Sotheby's, the auction house, to write an essay on a page of the Houghton Shahnameh that came up for auction last year. Yes. One of the most beautiful images of all Persian art. Describe it. Describe what it looked like. It was the the moment that Rustam recaptures the horse that's been taken away by the Akvendiv. And it, the horse is grazing on a hillside, and the artist has 
filled in every little area with uh, with the most gorgeous detail you can see the the sleeping shepherds you can see the different color of the different horses grazing on this mountainside it's everything that's most gorgeous about the high highest period of persian art just early safavid period well i think we should really put this into context they willie because it's been such a long time since we covered persia and we've all been on our christmas holes we've been on our christmas holes but we've also been on the high seas with the christmas ships mini series <laughs> which you've been so kind about thank you so much for all your lovely comments um it was just a joy to sort of do that it was a very good idea it was very oh, nice I like the three whose idea was it whose idea was I it i can't remember who was it <laughs> okay <laughs> it was my idea but anyway we may do some more themed mini series in in the future because you've responded so so well so watch this space but 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 william could you remind us where we were in the story the history of persia before we took our little diversionary break so Persian history is really sort of divided in two. And our Christmas break was partly designed around the fact that there is a very clear cleavage in the middle of Persian history, art and civilization. And, and that, of course, is the arrival of Islam. Before the arrival of Islam, you have the whole extraordinary story that we did in the first few episodes of the Achaemenids, who built Persepolis, Cyrus, Darius, Xerxes, the whole rivalry, growing rivalry with uh, the various Greek states, and finally, the arrival of Alexander extinguishing that and, and Persepolis disappearing into the sands. And then you have a period when you have the rise of a group of people called the Parthians, followed by the Sasanians. And the Sasanians very nearly rebuild an empire on the scale of their accumulated predecessors. The, the Sasanian Empire is the great rival of Rome. It stretches all the way from Uzbekistan to the middle of Turkey. It's a hugely powerful force, and it's the only force in the world that defied Rome. Rome, you know, as we know, cut right through civilization after civilization, taking over the whole of Gaul and Britain and the whole of North Africa uh, and all the Middle Eastern states that uh, it destroyed, like the Ptolemies in Egypt. Uh, but they couldn't take on the Persians. And over a period of four or 500 years, this rivalry goes backwards and forwards. Sometimes it's the Romans in the ascendancy. Usually it's the Sasanian Persians, and they inflict many crushing defeats on the Romans and uh, on one occasion even take an emperor prisoner and uh, use him to build roads and bridges for the rest of his uh, life, poor guy. Mm. And then you have, and this is what we did just before Christmas, this extraordinary last great war of antiquity. And this is the moment that the great lovers who are celebrated in, in later poetry, Khusro and Shireen, uh, are, are in charge of Persia. Shireen is, is a Christian. Khusro invades the Middle East and captures the true cross for her. He goes to Jerusalem uh, and brings the true cross back to Ctesiphon, his capital. And then you have this struggle with Heraclius, who's the Byzantine emperor, uh, which ultimately the Byzantines win. And at the end of, of, of a 30-year-long war, both the Sasanian Persians and the Byzantines are completely exhausted. Mm. And then something happens that no one anticipates. The Arab tribes, who have been small-time traders in the desert uh, of what's now Saudi Arabia, uh, the Hejaz, 
unite under a new leader, Muhammad, and under him and his successor, Abu Bakr, they burst out of the Hejaz and take first Palestine, then Syria, then Persia. And Persia, which has been for a thousand years an imperial power invading other people's territories and taking tribute from other people uh, and forcing other people to do what it wants, suddenly finds the boot on the other foot. And mm. they are occupied by some Arab tribes, a small warrior elite of Arabs uh, are occupying the country. But more specifically, the patronage of the state is now directed to a new religion, Islam, and away from the old Zoroastrian faith, which is in, in rapid decline, and the official language of government becomes Arabic. So although ordinary people still speak the Persian language in the streets, there is suddenly no court sponsoring literature, rewarding poets writing in Persian. And Persian almost disappears from the face of the earth as a literary, as a, a, as a state-backed language. And what we're going to tell the story of today is the extraordinary story of the return of Persian, and particularly the great poet Ferdowsi, whose Shahnameh uh, is not just one of the great poems of, of world history. It is a sort of one work revival strategy for the Persian language. I mean, that's an, an excellent summary of what happened before we went off on our ships. Uh, Vesta, let me ask you this. I mean, this is a really good thumbnail sketch that uh, William's just given us. How terrible was this for you know the Persian psyche, if you like, civilization, culture? Because they've not just been conquered militarily. They've had this, as William describes it, this imposition of another language, another religion, another way of living. Well, it is, it's quite drastic. I mean, everything changes, but it doesn't mean that the language disappears. And even the religion continues for a few centuries in certain parts of the country. It's just that the official language becomes Arabic and it's, it's an alien language. It's not Persian. It's not Iranian. Does that happen immediately? I mean, do, do a few Persian officials carry on in the ruins of Satisafan? Oh, they do. They do. Absolutely. They do continue. And also the impact and influence of Persian officials at the various courts, and particularly under the Abbasids, you know, in the 8th, 9th century, is enormous, enormous. I was talking at the end of the last series about the Barmakids, uh, the different generations of Barmakid viziers from Naubahar in Balkh. Yes. And the Barmakids, of course, are very interesting because they may have been Buddhists. Absolutely. They, they, were, they were hereditary rectors of Naubahar. Can I ask, I mean, how, I'm just really interested to know how even the um, discipline of remembering these verses, of keeping these verses, of holding the imagery in your, your head can, mm. can survive when you've got a new religion that doesn't believe in iconography, that doesn't like you know, the, the imagery and certainly despises the old religions of old Persia. I would say the sort of uh, ban on imagery is a later development, even in Islam. You don't have that at the very beginning of the Islamic era. And you find the Umayyads in their palaces privately yeah. in, in Jericho and so on, not only having images, but having nudity and images of quite sort of bucolic and bacchic imagery. 
So it sort of comes later, but you also have to bear in mind that in different parts of Iran, local dynasties continued, and particularly the northeast of Iran, Khorasan, northern Afghanistan, becomes sort of the region where the Persian language and Persian culture continues under a dynasty called the Samanids. These were kings, local kings, who prided themselves of descending from the Sasanian pre-Islamic dynasty. And they encouraged the Persian language, Persian poetry, and the link to the pre-Islamic past. And the Samanids are what, the 10th century, 9th century? 9th century. And it is at this time, it is under the Samanids that the whole revival of Persian language begins with poets like Rudaki of Samarkand, and Ferdowsi from Tus near Mashhad in northeastern Iran, because Ferdowsi starts his epic, the Shahnameh or Book of Kings, under the Samanids. Well, now you've mentioned Ferdowsi. I want to know. I mean, who who is he? Where is he born? What is the what is his life? What's his origin story? As we like to say on this podcast. Well, we know about Ferdowsi. Interestingly, from other Persian poets, and already about hundred years later, Nizami Aruzi gives an account of the life of Ferdowsi. Ferdowsi, the poet of the Shahnameh, came from a noble land-owning family in Nishabur, which is near Mashhad in Tus, uh, in northeastern Iran, and he began his composition of the Book of Kings in the 10th century, and he himself refers again and again to his sources. There were other stories, there were other Book of Kings. He also relies heavily on an oral tradition that is passed on to him, as he says himself, by wise men and priests. Vesta, just fill that out a bit, because 200 years have passed now since the, the death of the last Sasanian, Yazgad III. Yes. 651 is the date. Yes. A long time has passed between, what, 940 is the birth of, of uh, Fadozi? Sort of 930s, yeah. Yes. 930. In those 200 years, what has happened to the Persian language? Is it only spoken by peasants? or No, I think Persian was spoken. The administrative language became Arabic. You see, if it had disappeared completely and was only spoken by, you know, farmers, then it couldn't have revived. And also, when we talk about Ferdowsi's origin as a Dehqan, it's not a farmer, it's a landowner nobility. So he came from a very educated background. So what are we? what is the nature of the Arab conquest? Is it a few um, sort of camps of military warriors who seize the land? Or is it just paying taxes to people far away? What's the... Well, they do send their governors to the various places. There's no question about it. We have, for example, documents. We have coins minted in the names of the new Arab governors. But even that in itself is quite interesting because for several decades, they even 
mint coins in the way that the Sasanians did with the image of the Sasanian coin. They even use the language. I always think of what's happening in Damascus at this time, which is in, in the Byzantine end of the new conquest, where you have someone like the future St. John Damascene continuing in the administration. He's a Byzantine. He's a Christian. He will become one of the great Christian saints. He will retire to the monastery of Marsaba, now on the West Bank. Yes. But in his youth, he's in the streets with the with the young caliph, messing around, having a good time, and, yes. and very much part of it. Would you have found young Persian nobility mixing with the Arab warrior elite? I would say so, yes, yeah. definitely. And also advising them. I mean, we have to bear in mind and remember that when the conquerors came, they did not have the expertise. They did not have the professionals. So the Persians, the Iranians produced this expertise and supported them. And a lot of them, actually, of the Persians changed their names. So many officials that we come across with Arabic names are in fact ethnic Persians. Ah, interesting. Oh, how interesting. Yeah. Um, so, so getting back to, to Ferdowsi himself, would he have considered himself a proud Persian? What would he have considered himself to be? Oh, he would have uh, considered and he does consider himself as an Iranian. You mm -hmm. know, uh, Ferdowsi has this phrase that has become the sort of slogan of Iranians and the patriotic movement. And it says, if there is no Iran, then I won't exist. Right. I mean, you can't you can't put it more beautiful than that. So little wonder that he's become one of those many icons that we've been talking about lately for for the counter Ayatollah revolution. Absolutely, ah. and you know, at the beginning of the revolution, the Shahnameh was banned. Actually, formally banned. Formally banned. But people did not take any notice and they continued. There was a huge interest actually in the Shahnameh, perhaps more than before the revolution. Mm -hmm. And uh, in 1989, the Islamic Republic actually celebrated his millennium. So, um, I, I mean, this is this is Iran for you. These are the Persians. If you can't beat it, join it, okay, I suppose so. Um, can, can we talk about the, the man himself? So, I mean, was there any indication in, in Ferdowsi's childhood, you know, is this, this landowning family that he was going to become a scholar of, of such repute? Well, I think he's he was destined to become that because of the background, because he was born and brought up in an educated milieu in Khorasan in northeastern Iran under the Samanids. And this dynasty of the Samanids, they really supported Persian traditions, Persian history and Persian literature. In the last episode, uh, we were talking about Khosro and how at the beginning of his reign, he, he had to flee from Baram Chubin. Yes. Uh, who was this general that, that kicked about. The Samanids claimed descent from Baram Chubin, didn't they? Yeah, absolutely. So they were instrumental in reviving, as I said, the Persian language. And it's, I mean, at this time under the Samanids, you have Rudaki and you have also the woman poet uh, Rabi'e, also in modern day Afghanistan, who writes poetry, composes poetry in Persian. So it's a revival 
Right, women were recognised as poets in this time. Yes, I mean, yes, yes, and celebrated as such. Yes, yes. Well, that's that's very interesting. Uh, do we know at what point in his life he sits down and says, and what is the motivation to write the Shahnameh? What what, what happens to Ferdowsi? I think he says that he came across many sources and he mentions them. For example, he talks about the Nameh Bastan. The ancient book. Do we know what that was? What was the Nami Bustan? We know through a sort of introductions, prefaces in Shahnames that there were few other Shahnames, but none of them were in poetry. They were in prose, except about thousand double verses by a poet called Dariri, who is mentioned by Ferdowsi. So he was surrounded by all this literary tradition. And the beauty of Ferdowsi is that he mentions and acknowledges these sources. And is there a sense in which what he's doing is unusual only because he's writing it down rather than keeping it in an oral tradition? Or is there a literary written tradition that other other examples of which other than Rudaki and so on, have been lost. Well, Dariri, if we take Dariri, there was a a written tradition, but he was murdered very young, Dariri, so Mm. he couldn't complete his work. But the fact that he put it in poetry, that is very important. And he himself, again, if I may read, it says, Barafkandam zenazm kohi bolant, so I created, I built a very tall palace which will not be destroyed by rain or wind. May I just oh. say, those, the translation is beautiful, but when you read it in the original, it's even more beautiful, even though I don't understand what, what it means till you translate it. And Persians, when they read Fadozi, go into a sort of trance. There is a rhythm to it that gets, yeah. Absolutely. And you know, the nice thing about Fadozi is that a, you know, people enjoyed, and a lot of people, particularly in sort of 60, 70 years ago, who couldn't read or write in the villages, they could recite Ferdowsi. And people may not understand or, or the names of the other poets that you've talked about may not be familiar, but I've heard Ferdowsi many times compared to the, the Homer of the East. Mm. I mean, is that, do you think, a fair comparison. And and secondly, I mean, is the structure of his writing similar to, say, the Iliad or, or, or the Odyssey? It is actually. It is similar and it's also fair. There is only one big difference, and that is Ferdowsi does not cover just one generation. Ferdowsi covers the entirety of the ancient Persian period. Over 400 years, 500 years. Homer is a tradition rather than an individual. Well, you get the impression that Fadozi is very much a, a, an individual writer with his own style and, and, and a biography and a, a life, a birth date, a death date, and so yes. on. Yes, and there are all these different stories, they are absolutely beautiful. I mean, to come back to the story of Fed, uh, Rostam's horse, Rachsh, it's Rachsh, and Rachsh means shiny, illuminous. 
the painter made made the horse incredibly luminous. It's in gold and silver. Yeah. And the whole story, how Rostam discovers while hunting this horse. And when he finally catches the horse, he puts his hand on the back of the horse to see if it sort of sinks or not. Because Rostam was a very large, big hero. He was the hero of all heroes. And the horse doesn't move. So he takes on this horse and the horse becomes a companion. Raksh is not just a horse. Raksh is an animal, is a companion. He's almost a divine, divine creation who helps Rustam. And it's almost a love affair, isn't it? Because when, when he loses him, uh, he's totally distraught and he can't eat, he can't do anything till he finds Raksh again. Yes. And Raksh protects him. He protects him from the demon, the div. He protects him from the lions. He is always there to help and protect Rostam. How does it compare to the Indian tradition, uh, which is often oral? I mean, I've worked with Bopas in Rajasthan who know epics by heart, yes. and and they pass it on from generation to generation. Was Fadozi ever memorized in the way that Mah- the Mahabharata or the Ramayana was memorized? I would think so, yes, because you have storytellers in the Iranian tradition. You have storytellers who recite these stories in front of audiences. With pictures? With pictures. And you have, of course, the so-called, not so-called, but you have the coffeehouse paintings of the 19th century and eighteen late 18th century where different scenes of the Shahnameh appear and during the recital, they sort of served as backdrop. So if you were in the, the Samanid court or the Ghaznavid court, would you imagine that people would be of an evening rather than turning on the telly and watching Netflix, that they would be summoning Fadozi or, the, or, yes. or, the, or the oral storyteller, putting up a picture showing Absolutely. it with a, with a stick or a finger. And... I mean, I love this idea of the show and tell, that there's actually, there's a, there's an image behind it as well, which means he would have to be a talented orator as well as a talented poet. He would have to be. And also we know that in the, for example, Sasanian at the time of Khosrow II, there were very famous storytellers and singers, minstrels. Khosrow himself had two very famous minstrels who performed at his court and this is a very ancient tradition that goes back actually to the first century AD under the Parthians. Okay. When we talk about Fedorzi, I mean, I, I just want to understand exactly a bit more about him. I mean, did he have a religion? Would he have been Muslim, a, a Muslim convert at this time? He is Muslim and he is a Shiite. Okay. And he does make references to Imam Ali. So he is not a Zoroastrian. But what is disappointing for him is that when he completes his epic in 1010 and presents it to the new ruler who is now Sultan Mahmud of Ghazni, the Ghaznavids have now come to power. Who is considered a very, very dark name in, in India. Yeah, he is. I mean, the Samanids are now defeated by this Turkic tribe, Ghaznavid. Sultan Mahmud disappoints Ferdowsi. He does not reward him with gold coins that Ferdowsi was expecting. Sultan Mahmud doesn't like the fact that in the Shahnameh, the Turks are the enemies of 
the Iranians, the Persians. And they are very much throughout, aren't they? They're very much the, the, the baddies. So it's not a huge surprise that he wasn't thrilled. But, but I think what we, again, what I have to add here, that the equation of Iran and Turkish tribes is a much later thing. Originally, in the ancient stories that have a very pre-Islamic, in a way, Zoroastrian origin, Turan is an Iranian land. It much, much later, Turan is equated with Turkish land. Right. And, and just on, on, on the Shahnameh itself, I mean, we should, I mean, you said it's sort of a, a 400 year span of history. Yes. You know, it's not, it's more ambitious than Homer could ever be. Okay. But is it historic or does it divert from the true history of the Persian people it, 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 dramatically? I mean, just talk us through some of because Alexander does figure yeah. in the Shahnameh. Who, who, which are those sort of big episodes of history? And, yeah. and how yeah. close are they? And Kusra, as you say, and Shireen, who we talked about with great pleasure. Actually, it, it covers much more than 400 years. Rostam lives for 400 years, but it starts really with the mythological past. And the beauty of this part of the Shahnameh is that it corresponds to the most ancient myths of the Zoroastrian texts, the Yasht. So you can actually find names in the Zoroastrian scriptures and in the Shahnameh about this mythological beginning, the sort of appearance of first man who wears a leopard skin. Then you have King Jamshid or the Yima, the Indian Yima, who introduces religion and kingship but then he becomes very full of himself and conceited and is punished by God and loses his kingly glory. And yet there's no mention of Cyrus, of Darius or Xerxes. The great Achaemenid kings are forgotten. No, but not by name, not by name. But some people believe that perhaps some of the kings that are celebrated in the sort of early part may have really been echoes of Cyrus and Darius. But it's also largely because the sort of historical part or the history of Iran was rewritten by Zoroastrian priests in the 6th and 7th century AD. So a much more stronger emphasis was put on the Avestan background than the Achaemenid Persian background. Right. So, I mean, Darius, Cyrus, not named, but Alexander is, Sekander is, but it's a kind of a, a, a very interesting, different kind of story. Now, tell us, what, yes. does, what does the Shahnameh say about Sekander? Alexander is turned into a semi-Iranian in the Shahnameh. He becomes related to the king, the last Persian king, Dara, the third. And there is a reason for that. I mean, Alexander in the Iranian tradition couldn't have become the legitimate king of kings of Iran because he was not Iranian. He could not have been the holder of the kingly glory that God, Ahura Mazda, the Zoroastrian wise lord, would offer and hand over to the king of kings. So in order to, in a way, make the situation plausible, he was turned into a half Persian. I love that. <laughs> and he's a very noble figure, isn't he? He he comes to the dying Dara 
Yeah. And gives him gives him succor and Yes. Is he is he a man or is he sort of uh, semi divine? I mean d- does he give him godlike qualities as well? This this second no, Alexander. No, so he's no, very no. much just a mortal who does uh, does great things. But a noble mortal and a exemplary mortal. Yeah. Vesta, what is the significance of the fact that he's so hostile to the Arabs and not obviously Although you say he's a Shia, he's he, yeah. he's not obviously an enthusiast for Islamic history. Absolutely not. I mean, he is very anti-Arab, very anti-Arab. That's so and, interesting. I mean, you know, sometimes a bit uncomfortably. Like, like what? I mean, give us some examples of where where you're you're cringing. We can't see that on a on a on an audio well, format. Well, he does refer again and again that the Arabs destroyed everything, that the Arabs ruined the language, and. There are actually references also that he makes about sort of unpleasant. I don't want to go into that. No, but how interesting and how significant. Yeah, yeah and how interesting that you feel as uncomfortable. It must have been. Yeah, must have must have been must have been pretty bad. Two hundred years had passed since the conquest, and yet this this is obviously a very raw, raw wound. Very yeah. much so. Very much so. And also, there is this story of Zahak, the usurper who comes to the throne after the rule of Jamshid or Yima, and he introduces a period of darkness into the history of Iran. And he has he has made a pact with Ahriman or the devil, and two snakes come out of his shoulders. And every day he has to feed young men to these snakes. But he's described as an Arab. Mm. Do you know what? It's a it's a good point to take a break. Well, I was going to say, so eating snakes, eating serpents, eating men is never a good point to take a break, <laughs> but we will. Anyway, join us after the break when we hear more from our excellent guest, Vestas Alkosh Curtis, and more about this extraordinary book, The Shahnameh. Welcome back. So just before the break, we were talking about sort of the 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 heavy and almost, I mean, it feels to me almost like the Greek myth imagery of serpents eating men and tributes. I mean, how much of the, the Hellenistic is kind of influential or how much of this is a, is a mix of different invasions, incursions in the history of Persia itself? I don't think there is actually, not in the Shahnameh, you can't find, or there, there aren't that many Hellenistic features there. It's sort of very much a tradition where you know, evil things are associated with insects and snakes. Then, of course, you have the demons from various stories like the Deves. These are people that are presented as the enemies of Iran. That I mean, the main story within the Shahnameh is the fight between good and evil, Iran and its opponents. And all the heroes have one task, and that is to save and protect Iran. And of course, the most important hero, the Jahan Pahlavan, the hero of the world, is Rustam. Tell us more about Rustam. For for those who don't know, I mean, both of you have been discussing Rustam because you know, but but who, who is he? What is his story and why is he so important? Oh, he is the hero who's lives in the Shahnameh for 400 years. He is the hero that survives many kings and he helps kings and he protects the frontiers of Iran. He is the son of Zal and Rudabe. 
And it's very interesting how he comes to this world, how his father, Zol, was brought up by a legendary bird. When Zol is born, he is completely white. He may have been an albino, we don't know. And mm. the father is shocked to see this baby. And he says, I don't want to have anything to do with this and abandons the baby. The baby is then rescued by the legendary Seymour, a bird that takes Zal up to the Albors Mountains and brings up Zal as its own baby son. And then the father of uh, Zal has a dream that his son is somewhere in the mountains being brought up by a bird, legendary bird, and the father decides that time has come, he's done a terrible thing, and he has to go and rescue his child. So he goes to the top of the Albert's Mountains and sees this bird and asks the bird to return uh, his son to him. Eventually, Rostam is returned, and something magic happens. Zal tells, or Simorg, the bird, tells Zal, if you are ever in trouble, light my feather. And he gives him a few feathers. And I will come to your rescue. Time passes. Zal and Rudabe. Zal marries Rudabe. And they expect a child. And the child is Rustam. But because he is so big, a natural birth is impossible. And there are actually illuminations. There are beautiful paintings where... Uh, Rudabe is lying there, you know, and she is in pain. And her husband takes a feather and brushes it onto her tummy because the bird appears and says, oh, she needs a C-section. She needs to be cut up. Wow. <laughs> and Rustam comes out and R Ferdosi describes how he is a beautiful infant, but like an elephant. <laughs> like an <laughs> oh, hence the C-section. Okay, hence the C-section. So uh, the the story of Rustam is magnificent. He continues to grow up. He becomes a very famous hero, and he moves continuously from one part of the country to the other, fighting off the Turanians. Turanians, and, yeah. yes, and his most famous enemy, Afrasia. Afrasiab is, is the embodiment of everything that yes. is anti-Iran. Anti-Iran. Yeah. And then, then there is the story that, of course, uh, Rostam goes to Samangan, which is in uh, modern-day Afghanistan, and he meets the daughter of the king of Kabul, falls in love, and uh, then spends a night with her. And before he leaves... He gives her an armlet and says, if you ever become pregnant or have a child of mine, if it's a boy, use this as an armlet on his arm. And if it's a girl, put it in her hair. Mm. And Rostam moves away from uh, Samangan and gives birth to a child, to Sohrab. a son called Sohrab. And of course, Matthew Arnold has this wonderful poem of Sohrab and Rustam, which deals exactly with this story. 
And you, now you've got to finish that story. What happens? Yes. I, well, I was going to say, can you can you read a little bit of it in Persian and then finish the story? Because I'd love to hear what this you know this epic poem sounds like in in its original language, if it's if it's at all possible. Yes. What is very moving is the end of the story because Rostam decides to go to Iran and find his father, but. Both the Iranians and the Turanians are not very keen that these two people should meet, particularly the Turanians, the eastern enemies. They're worried that Sohrab would go to the enemy and uh, they would lose the battle against Iran. So he goes out with his horse and every time he asks about Rostam, nobody gives him really clear answers. And then he meets Rostam on the battlefield because Rostam is also not told that his son is coming to find him. And these two start fighting with each other. And Rostam eventually wounds or inflicts a heavy wound on Sohra. And as he is lying there on the ground, he says, Wait till my father finds out that you have killed me. And Rostam says, well, who is your father? And he says, it's Rostam. And Rostam cries and (sighs) is just beyond himself. And then Rostam says in Persian, بخواهد هم از تو پدر کین من چو بیند که خشت از بالین من چو رستم شنید این سخن گیره گشت جهان پیش چشمندرش تیره گشت He says, Sohrab says, there's no point in you crying even if you become a fish and disappear into waters. My father will come and take revenge when he sees that my pillow is made of earth, of the ground. And Rostam, when he sees that, the whole world turns black in front of him. And then he says, well, open your, you know, your tunic. So Rob opens his tunic. He sees the armlet. So he knows it's true. And he's killed his own son. Yeah, yeah. And Fadazi lost his son, didn't he? There's a lament. Yes. So, and and this is like an unusual thing because it is so very personal. You know, it comes out of the stories of kings and the stories of legend. It's absolutely magnificent. It it's just painful. It really is painful. Yeah. I mean, the whole story. It's beautiful. And yes, it probably reminded Ferdowsi of his own son. But maybe we'll read a little, William, you, you and I, and then maybe we'll hear Vesta do some of it in the, in the original Persian. Now that I'm more than 65 years old, it would be wrong of me to hope for gold. Better to heed my own advice and grieve that my dear son is dead. Why did he leave? I should have gone. But no, the young man went and left his lifeless father to lament. I long to overtake him. When I do, I'll say, I should have quit the world, not you. And in your going, my beloved boy, you left your father destitute of joy. Mm. You were my help in adversity. Why now I'm old have you abandoned me? Did you perhaps find younger friends who led you from my side to travel on ahead? At 37, his unhappy heart despaired and he was ready to depart. 
when difficulties came, he'd always shown me kindness. Now he's left me here alone. He went while grief and bitter tears remain, and inward suffering and heartfelt pain. He's gone into the light, and he'll prepare a place of welcome, his dear father there. So many years have passed, and surely he is waiting there impatiently for me. May God illuminate your soul, my son, and wisdom keep you safe where you have gone. That's Dick Davis's translation of Fadazi's lament for his own son. Yeah, what's, what, what did happen to his son? What did happen to Fadazi's son? Uh, we don't know what happened, but he died. He probably died of uh, an, an illness, yes. How does the Shahnameh conclude? I mean, where does it take us up to? Well, Rustam dies. Rustam is killed by his half-brother. Again, you know, you have all the time the sort of forces of goodness and evil. And um, uh, his half-brother, Shaqad, builds a pit full of arrows and daggers and swords and somehow lures um, Rustam into the pit together with Raksh. And Raksh tries to warn Rustam not to go near the pit. Raksh, the horse. The horse, yeah. yeah. And then they fall into the pit and Rustam is so much wounded that he can't survive. But at the very end, he manages to hit out on his brother and kill him, the half-brother. And that's how this Shahnameh finishes. And what is the origin of the story of Rustam? Is it an oral tradition? Is it from the from the, uh, the Zoroastrian tradition? Where, where does its roots lie? No, interestingly not. It's not. And we think, I mean, Rustam himself, uh, or Ferdowsi describes him as a king of Sistan, which is southeastern Iran, Afghanistan. He describes him as a Sagzi, as a Saka, a Scythian. I mean, these are Iranian peoples who live in eastern Iran. And he is a local king there. Interestingly enough, his name does not appear in the Avestan scriptures. And it is thought that he comes from a eastern Iranian tradition, not actually at all um, related to uh, Zoroastrian heroes. Interesting. It's interesting because I know so many uh, Zoroastrians who call their children Rustam. Rustam, Rustam yeah. So many Rustams yeah. and, and, and Ahitas and Gustavs. And, yeah. yeah, very important figure actually amongst the Zoroastrians and Parsis. And the, the poetry is so moving. I mean, he, the translation was moving. When you read it too, just the lilting the nature the of the lil- sound yeah. is so transporting. So when he he delivers the Shahnameh, do people immediately recognise his genius? Is he? I mean, is he? You know, glorified and does he bathe in the glory of his work? No, he does not. I mean, certainly the, opposite. the yeah. people who should have glorified his work, the ruler Sultan Mahmud of Ghazni, does not appreciate it, and he goes back to his hometown of Tus, really upset and very discouraged. He gives away. The silver coins, he regards it as such a paltry payment. He knew how much his work was worth. Yes, and uh, Sultan Mahmud is then convinced by his courtiers and his nobles uh, that this is really a very important piece of work. And when he sends out an envoy to find 
Ferdowsi. Ferdowsi has died. Oh my goodness! So he dies. He oh dies without goodness. his work being recognised. Well, he doesn't. Yes, he doesn't realise. He doesn't realise how he is going to be loved and cherished. Can I just read some of the lines of you know that that reaction he had to the silver coins rather than the gold coins? Yes, because it is actually ahead. it's it's glorious. It's in the Shannon. I mean, he's pissed off, and he writes he writes exactly how he feels after sixty five years had passed over my head. I toiled ever more diligently with greater difficulty at my task. I searched out the history of kings, but my star was a laggard one. Nobles and great men wrote down that I had written without paying me. I watched them from a distance as if I was a hired servant of theirs. I had nothing from them but their congratulations. My gallbladder was ready to burst with their congratulations. Their purses of hoarded coins remained closed and my bright heart grew weary at their stinginess. It's funny because it's, it's Mahmoud Ghazni is someone who's hated both in the Indian tradition and in the Persian tradition. In India, he's hated for destroying temples. In Persia, he's hated for not rewarding Ferdowsi with his, what he, his, his work was worth. Mm. So, Vesta, who tells the story of poor Fadazi not being paid for his work or only getting pathetic silver coins? Later poets. Later poets, Nizami. like I mentioned, Nizami Aruzi, they describe this, and we know that from various sources. Yeah. The, I've seen beautiful miniatures again of Fadazi walking away from the gates of Mehmud's palace with that. That must be from Nizami. Yeah. Oh. So, I mean, it's, you know, we've, we've covered the, the poor death of, of Ferdowsi. And, I mean, it's such a tragic end and just not what he deserved. Was his funeral, at least, you know, was, was it held with great reverence? Or even then, he was not really, not really, even his death wasn't recognized. No, no, he didn't have a great funeral. In fact, uh, we know that his tomb was actually attacked and destroyed for a while. But again, Nizami Aruzi in the early, very beginning of the 12th century says that his tomb was rebuilt and it became a site of pilgrimage for Iranians. So at the time of his death, no, he definitely wasn't celebrated. And we should say that when he died, he died in Tabaristan on the southeast coast of the Caspian. And he did have a Persian chief named Ispabud. Yes. Who looked after him in his old age. Yes. And the story about Mahmoud Ghazni, there's this lovely moment when someone actually quotes a verse from Fadozi, and, uh, and Mahmoud looks up and says, oh, that's wonderful, Who's, who wrote that? And it's that point that he realizes that, uh, what he's done wrong and offers 60,000 gold dinars, and the messenger goes to find him and, and, and the news comes, he's just died. And it's died. too late. Uh, yeah, yeah, too late. Let's talk about the resurgence of both the Persian language, the Persian culture, and Fadozi himself. Tell us a little bit about when that happens. Well, this happens with, I mean, with Ferdowsi because... With his Shahnameh, he starts a new tradition. And there are various other books about heroes, about kings that are produced after Ferdowsi and from the 13th, 14th century onwards. And the Mongols, uh, of course, seized on this idea of kingship in order to legitimize their rule and produce magnificent shahnames, illustrated shahnames in Iran. The Ilkhanids in Tabriz, particularly. Ilkhanids of, yeah, yeah, absolutely, yes. So he really started a tradition that continued right through to the 19th, 
early 20th century under the Qajars. We should also say that something very important happens also in the Mongol period. The initial Mongol invasions, which are catastrophic for Khorasan, where the Persian language is being preserved and the flame is being kept alive, produces this wave of refugees. Today, in our own time, we've seen what happened in Syria during the war. Uh, with, with, and Syria is a small country, and, and, the, and these refugees have flooded across the Mediterranean, have entered, entered Turkey, and so on. The same happens on a much, much greater scale with Genghis Khan. And all these Persian speakers, Rumi, for example, flees to Anatolia, but many flee to the new Delhi Sultanate, which has just been founded in North India. And this is like a bridgehead. It's very fragile. It's got no culture. It's just a bunch, rather like the American West in the kind of in the kind of eighteen fifties. And this sudden surge of Persian-speaking, highly educated Persian excellence washes Persian up. excellence come here, yeah. and you find suddenly in sort of the twelve forties, fifties, this blossoming of Persianate culture. In the Delhi Sultanate, it had previously been a very philistine and very rough and tumble warrior world, and you have the first great madrasas opening up in Delhi at Hauskas, and Persian becomes the language of diplomacy and literature in India. Far and and by the Mughal period in the 16th and 17th, there are more books being written in Persian in India than in the old Iranian lands. And it's only the British conquest in in the 1830s that ends that Persian tradition and nips it in the bud. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Then you get also in with the Safavids, when the Safavids reestablish Iran as, in a sense, a nation state, a, a, yes. a country named Iran, not just a land of the Persians, a place where the Persian language and Persian culture is kept alive, but the Safavids bring back the geography. Yes. of Iran. And they reach for the Shahnameh as a national text, don't they? Absolutely. And you have magnificent illustrated Shahnameh produced at Tabriz in Ghazvin. Shah Tamas particularly, arguably the greatest of all yes. the, the Shahnameh. And in Herat as well. well. And the great, great school. But they bring, I think the Safavids bring the best of the, the scribes and the painters from Herat. They mix them with the best of the painters in Tabriz. They bring them together in one place. And the result is the Shahnameh of Shah Tamas, which is the to to Persian art of that period, what Fadawzi is to yes, it's the great masterpiece. We will leave it in your hands on how to actually leave this wonderful, epic, and emotional story, Vesta. What what are the lines that we should be left with? I think I would like to finish off with the beginning of the Shahnameh and Ferdowsi's words, which are equally moving as all the other stories. And to me, it's quite significant that he starts off in praise of God, but he uses the Zoroastrian terms of the Lord of Wisdom, right? He says, says, in the name of the Lord of both wisdom and mind. Uh. Yeah, it's, this is Ahura Mazda. It's lovely it's and it Ahura is perfect. Mazda. To nothing sublime can thought be applied. 
the Lord of whatever is named or assigned, a place in the sustainer of all and the guide. I think I'd like to finish off here. It, it can't be more beautiful. I can't think of a better way. Well, you've brought us full circle uh, and thank so beautifully you, and so elegantly. Vesta, thank you so much. And with that, My pleasure. that's it from uh, Empire with me, Anita Arnon. And me, William Durrumpel.